Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Knowing the Difference, Audrey Lord. The subject of today's episode described herself this way, I am a black, lesbian, feminist, warrior, poet, mother, doing my work. We'll see over the course of this episode why it would have been quite reasonable for her to have included philosopher in this list. Given that she chose to highlight her vocation as a poet, though, it seems equally reasonable to begin by reading one of her poems. We've selected a short, stirring, and yet also enigmatic piece entitled Now, first published in 1974. It reads, Woman power is, black power is, human power is, always feeling, my heart beats as my eyes open, as my hands move, as my mouth speaks, I am, are you, ready? The poem's opening lines evidently touch on a major theme of our mini-series of episodes on Black feminism, namely the question of the relationship between the struggle for women's liberation and the struggle for Black liberation. Should we take Lord to be saying, as it appears on first glance, that these struggles are somehow one and the same thing, because woman power is Black power is human power? This is almost certainly part of her message, but there's an ambiguity here, which is especially clear on the page. She places the word is on a separate line each time it appears in the poem, and capitalizes woman, black, and human. In light of this, we could alternatively read her as saying that woman power is, that is, woman power currently exists, with the same thing being true of black power and human power. To read her as telling us what currently exists would make some sense of the poem's title, Now. However we choose to resolve that ambiguity, or maybe the idea is that we shouldn't, we also have to find a way to make sense of the poem's seemingly abrupt transition from talk of collective power to talk of the personal experience of one's body, always feeling my heart beats as my eyes open, as my hands move, as my mouth speaks. We can turn for help to Jack Turner's recent discussion of Lord's commitment to individuality, which he refers to as her relational democratic individualism. Turner claims that, while groups are important to Lord, it's crucial from her perspective that groups are still home to individuals, individuals who belong to multiple groups concurrently, who sometimes feel alienated from all of them, who are each more than the sum of their group affiliations. Applying Turner's general claim to this poem in particular, we can take Lord to be asserting poetically that woman power, black power, and human power each find expression and currently manifest themselves through the experiences and actions of individuals such as herself. Individuals with beating hearts, with eyes that may see problems and possibilities, with hands that may move in order to make change, and with mouths that may speak in order to communicate, call people together, and continuously challenge oppression. Perhaps Audre Lorde was predestined to do philosophy in poetic form since she was born in Harlem in 1934, right at the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. About a decade before her birth, Alain Locke wrote in The New Negro of Harlem not merely as the largest Negro community in the world, but the first concentration in history of so many diverse elements of Negro life. Locke made reference in particular to diversity of origin, pointing out that Harlem has not only brought together the Negro of the North and the Negro of the South, but also attracted the African and the West Indian. Lord's birth in Harlem was the result of such West Indian migration. 
Her parents came as a couple to the United States from Grenada, although her father was born in Barbados. Lord spoke in an interview of how this Caribbean background was overwhelmingly important in the initial formation of her identity. As children in New York City, we were raised to believe that home was somewhere else. Home was Grenada or Barbados. There was an American culture, there were American people, but they were not us. We were just visitors, and someday we would return home. In her book, Zami, Lord depicts this attitude as a way of making the difficulties of urban life in Harlem more bearable, writing, This now, here, was a space, some temporary abode, never to be considered forever nor totally binding nor defining, no matter how much it commanded in energy and attention. For if we lived correctly and with frugality, looked both ways before crossing the street, then someday we would arrive back in the sweet place, back home. Zami is a memoir that Lord published in 1982. It stands beside the works of figures we've recently discussed, like Angela Davis and Maya Angelou, as another example of the importance of autobiographical writing as a vehicle for the expression of ideas in the Africana tradition. Lord actually referred to Zami as a biomythography, a form combining history, biography, and myth. This evokes the idea of a free-ranging, self-conscious stylization of the self, an approach exemplified even in the book's full title, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name. Does Lord mean here to announce that she should now be called Zami, Z-A-M-I, and not Audrey? It certainly wouldn't be the first or last time that we're seeing an Africana thinker renaming themselves, but that's not quite what's going on. The full story is a bit more complicated. The name she was given was Audrey, A-U-D-R-E-Y. She recalls, however, being as young as four years old and preferring to drop the Y. She writes, I did not like the tail of the Y hanging down below the line in Audrey and would always forget to put it on, which used to disturb my mother greatly. Lord tells us that she loved the evenness, the more symmetrical pairing of Audrey, A-U-D-R-E, with Lord, L-O-R-D-E. She goes on to describe the experience of writing her name without the Y in a kindergarten class. So Lord has been choosing how to spell her name, and thus choosing a way of being herself, since childhood. As for Zami, this name returns us to the relationship between individual and collective identity. Zami is a word that Lord associates with the island of Karaku, which is one of the Grenadine Islands, found in the stretch between the island of Grenada and the island of St. Vincent. Most of these are territorially a part of the nation known, appropriately enough, as St. Vincent and the Grenadines, but Karaku is part of Grenada, and this is where Lord's mother was born. We learn from Lord's biographer, Alexis DeVoe, that Lord heard her mother and aunts use the word Zami and had assumed it to be African in origin. Only later, after the publication of the book, did she discover that it came from French Creole. Zami, like the French les amis, means friends, although the Creole term seems to have applied quite specifically to female friends. As Lord came to understand it, and as she put it in the epilogue of her book, Zami was a Karaku name for women who work together as friends and lovers. She writes in the epilogue that every woman I have ever loved has left her print upon me and speaks of her life becoming at some points a bridge and field of women. Thus, Zami fits her as a name because a large part of the point of the memoir is to explore her growth and development as a black lesbian, a woman who loves women. Indeed, while we've already encountered reflections on same-gender-loving sexuality from Black female thinkers like Lorraine Hansberry, it is safe to say that no well-known thinker has embraced, embodied, and underlined her identity as a Black lesbian more than Audre Lorde. 
Lord provides us in Zami with illuminating reflections on what it was like to come into adulthood in 1950s New York City as a black gay girl. She was living in Greenwich Village, exploring her sexuality, but this dimension of her identity was not at that point well integrated with her identity as a black person, and specifically as a black woman. She writes, The black gay girls in the village gay bars of the 50s knew each other's names, but we seldom looked into each other's black eyes, lest we see our own aloneness and our own blunted power mirrored in the pursuit of darkness. Indeed, it appears that a majority of Lord's sexual and romantic partners over the course of her life were white. She suggests, in the passage just quoted, that while there was greater freedom for non-traditional coupling in a place like the village at that time, she and others like her found this opportunity coupled with something else, the marginality and isolation of being black in white-dominated spaces. She exposes the tragedy of being uncomfortable with other black women precisely because your shared blackness might make your marginality and isolation less easy to ignore. Perhaps the only predictable thing about Audre Lorde's life was its unpredictability, so now is a fine time to note that in 1962, this famous black lesbian also married a white man and had two children with him. His name was Ed Rollins, and it's undoubtedly relevant to mention that, just as Lorde was mainly interested in women, he was predominantly interested in men. This naturally leads to the thought that these two gay people were engaged only in the fiction of a marriage, completely out of convenience. Lorde's biographer, DeVoe, makes it clear that the truth is more complex. They had already become close when Lord pursued and happily attained a sexual relationship with Rollins, but Rollins was not satisfied with this kind of partnership and pressed for marriage. Whatever attracted him to that idea and whatever caused her to agree, they were certainly a non-traditional couple from the beginning. Their same-gender attractions were never a secret to each other, and neither of them expected monogamy from the other. They did, however, have children, a daughter, Beth, born in 1963, and a son, Jonathan, born the following year. By the time of Jonathan's birth, Lord had begun to gain attention for her poetry. Her history of publication began much earlier, as her first published poem, entitled Spring, appeared in Seventeen magazine while she was still in high school. In fact, it was the April 1951 issue of that magazine, so Lord was in Seventeen at the age of Seventeen. After high school, she began pursuing a bachelor's degree at Hunter College, but she took a break and thus did not finish until 1959. For obvious reasons, we'll mention that while she majored in English, she also did a minor in philosophy. Following this, she obtained a master's degree in library science from Columbia University and began working as a librarian. During all this time, she continued to write poetry. By the early 1960s, pieces she published caught the eye of none other than Langston Hughes, that great poet of the Harlem Renaissance still active so many decades after its end. As in the case of Alice Walker, which we discussed a couple of episodes ago, Hughes included Lord in an anthology he edited, in this case of poetry rather than short stories. 1968 was a turning point in Lord's career. She published her first book of poetry entitled The First Cities and accepted an invitation to be a poet in residence at Tougaloo College, a historically black college in Jackson, Mississippi. She'd never gone south before, and she'd never taught, but on her own initiative, given that it was not a requirement of her residency, Lord organized a workshop for poets. Her frank discussions with the Black student participants and the experience of nurturing their efforts to write transformed her identity. As she herself later explained, I came to realize that this was my work, that teaching and writing were inextricably combined, and it was there that I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. 
Not long after she returned to New York, she stopped being a librarian and began teaching, first in a writing program at City College, which is part of the City University of New York, or CUNY. She would go on to teach at various other parts of CUNY over the years to come, ending up at her alma mater, Hunter College. Tougaloo is not just where Lord learned about her love of teaching, though. It's also where she first met and fell in love with Frances Clayton, a white woman, a professor of psychology, who was also visiting at Tougaloo but employed in the Department of Psychology at Brown University. When Lord separated from Ed Rollins a few years later, their separation agreement included the stipulation that Lord remain in the state of New York. Clayton became so devoted to Lord that she left her job at Brown to move in with Lord into a house on Staten Island, where she also became heavily involved in caring for Lord's two children. Lord and Clayton's relationship would last in some form for roughly two decades of Lord's life, from 1968 to 1988. Along with Clayton and the children, Lord took a trip to West Africa in 1974, and this was, perhaps just a little bit predictably, another transformative journey. They spent time in Togo, Ghana, and the country that would be renamed Benin the following year, but which in 1974 was still known as Dahomey. It was, in fact, this last country that seemed to have left the strongest impression on Lord. She learned much at WIDA about the syncretistic connection between belief in the Orishas of the Yoruba religious tradition and belief in the divinities of the Dahomey or Fon tradition, all of which managed to influence diasporic traditions like Haitian voodoo. As DeVos sums up the intellectual fire that sparked within Lord, when her time in Africa was over, Africa in Lord had just begun. Her female-centered attraction to traditional divinities is on display, for example, in her 1978 collection of poetry, The Black Unicorn, considered by many critics to be her best. And, by the way, Lord also made it back to Africa in 1977 because she went to Festac, making her yet another figure in our series that was in Nigeria at the time of that remarkable festival of the Black world. So, we've now reached the late 1970s, a time during which Lord, while still a poet above all, transformed more and more into a public intellectual. She began to express herself more often in prose, albeit prose of an unmistakably poetic variety. This culminated in the book that has done the most to secure her growing reputation as a landmark figure in the history of Africana philosophy, Sister Outsider. This 1984 collection of essays bears an insightful introduction by the woman whose idea it was for Lord to publish such a collection, Nancy Berriano. As an editor at The Crossing Press, Beriano was instrumental in getting more feminist writing to the public. She was involved, for example, in the 1983 publication by The Crossing Press of white feminist and professional philosopher Marilyn Fry's The Politics of Reality, Essays in Feminist Theory, in which, incidentally, Fry at one point draws philosophical lessons from her experience of attending a poetry reading by Lord. Beriano lets readers know in her introduction to Sister Outsider that there's something ironic in the book's genesis, given Lord's own insistence that she doesn't write theory, that she's a poet and not a theorist. Beriano pushes back, presciently. Lord's status as a poet is undeniable, and yet there can be no doubt that Sister Outsider, a collection of essays and speeches drawn from the past eight years of this black lesbian feminist nonfiction prose, makes absolutely clear to many what some already knew, Audre Lorde's voice is central to the development of contemporary feminist theory. She is at the cutting edge of consciousness. Beriano thus prepares us for the philosophical depth of Lorde's contributions to theory, partly by noting that they emerged organically from a life self-consciously devoted not to theory, but to the artistic practice of poetry. 
Consider the book's second chapter, Poetry is Not a Luxury, first published in the feminist magazine Chrysalis in 1977. Even the title shows that she would never give up poetry in pursuit of these supposedly lofty heights of theory. She criticizes what she sees as a European and patriarchal tradition of privileging ideas over feelings. Letting Descartes stand in for the tradition she is criticizing, she writes, The white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. The black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. It's no surprise that Lord is team poetry, given that she associates poetry with both freedom and being in touch with our feelings. On the other hand, Lord connects poetry to ideas in positive ways as well, as when she argues that poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless, so it can be thought. Poetry is, in fact, a sort of go-between, allowing us to link feelings and ideas in the most fruitful way. She writes, As they become known to and accepted by us, our feelings and the honest exploration of them become sanctuaries and spawning grounds for the most radical and daring of ideas. Of course, the idea at the heart of the essay, that poetry is not a luxury but a necessity, is itself a radical and daring one. So Lord can indeed be viewed as a woman of ideas, as long as we don't understand this to mean privileging ideas over feelings. Sister Outsider, as Beriano noted, comprises selected prose stretching from 1976 to 1984. It is irresistibly rich in ideas and full of connections to important moments in Lord's life during those years. To bring this out, we'll highlight just one aspect of the book for each of those eight years. For 1976, we have the book's first chapter, Notes from a Trip to Russia. Lord constructed it from journal entries she wrote while traveling to Moscow and then Tashkent in Uzbekistan as an American observer at the African-Asian Writers' Conference. Here, Lord attempts to balance realistic criticism and suspicion of the USSR with idealistic attraction to socialist dreams. It is characteristic of her focus on embodied experience that dreams is meant to be taken quite literally. Upon her return to the United States from her trip, she kept dreaming of Moscow, and in one dream, she found herself making love to a woman who seemed ill. Eventually, she came to the realization that Russia's socialized medicine would take care of this woman. Lord admits, For a while, in my dreams, Russia became a mythic representation of that socialism which does not yet exist anywhere I have been. For 1977, we choose the book's third chapter, The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. This year and this chapter take us to one of the central dramas of Lord's life, her battles with cancer. She presented the transformation of silence into language and action at a conference less than a month after getting the good news that a tumor found in her right breast was benign, but she found another lump the next year that turned out to be malignant. This would be only the first of three different kinds of cancer that would attack her body over the years to come. Back in 1977, she used the fear she experienced before getting good news as a spur to philosophical reflection. In becoming forcibly and essentially aware of my mortality and of what I wished and wanted for my life, however short it might be, priorities and omissions became strongly etched in a merciless light, and what I most regretted were my silences. In other words, asking herself what really matters in light of the looming of life's ending, she came to a conclusion opposite to the one we long ago saw championed in ancient Egyptian works like the instruction of Tahotep. While that work portrayed silence as a virtue, and perhaps the greatest one, Lord came to see silence as a fear-based vice that we must struggle vehemently to overcome. As she famously puts it here, 
your silence will not protect you. Although it does not come up in Sister Outsider, we should also note that 1977 is the year that Lord got involved with the Combahee River Collective, whom we introduced in our first episode on the new black feminism of this time. She attended their first retreat for black lesbians and feminists in July of that year, having been introduced to the group by founding member Barbara Smith, who was an English professor at Emerson College in Boston. When Lord first met Smith at a conference the previous year, Smith apparently wondered aloud to the audience at her plenary remarks if it was possible to be a black lesbian writer and live to tell about it. Smith went on to include a version of this rhetorical question in her seminal essay, Toward a Black Feminist Criticism, which was published in that unforgettably named anthology, All of the Women Are White, All of the Men Are Black, But Some of Us Are Brave. There, Smith expresses her worry about the viability of a life as a black lesbian writer in response to a satirical comment by the novelist Ishmael Reed, who gave the example of a black poetess who's usually a feminist lesbian when complaining of black writers being used as tokens by the literary establishment to impede intellectual debate among Afro-Americans. One can imagine that Smith took this comment by Reed to directly target writers like Lord. For her part, at the retreat organized by the collective in 1977, Lord encouraged her fellow Black feminists to do the hard work of developing and maintaining an ongoing vision and a theory following upon that vision of why we struggle, of the shape and taste and philosophy of what we wish to see. Moving on to 1978, the fifth chapter of Sister Outsider is Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power. It has become one of Lord's most celebrated works, and rightly so, since it's among the most creative reflections on sexuality in the Africana tradition. Part of what makes it so creative and intriguing is how little Lord talks about sex itself in the essay. She defines the erotic expansively as an assertion of the life force of women, of that creative energy empowered the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives. She criticizes narrow ways of understanding what is erotic as missing the variety of the erotically satisfying experience, whether it is dancing, building a bookcase, writing a poem, examining an idea. That last example raises the prospect that podcasts about the history of Africana philosophy may be the thing that erotically spices up your life. Usually, we're very happy to get comments from listeners on any point that comes up in the podcast, but in this case, we do advise being appropriately discreet. In any case, the variety that Lord sees in the erotic does not lead us to refrain from treating the essay as a striking reflection on sexuality. Much of the power of Lord's points in the essay derive precisely from the ways she is able to place sexual experience in this wider context. 1979 was clearly a busy year for Lord, for we have five chapters to choose from in Sister Outsider, dating back in their original forms to this year. It is tempting to turn our attention to the sixth chapter, Sexism, an American Disease in Blackface, as Lord here critically responds to Robert Staples' essay, The Myth of Black Macho, a response to angry black feminists, which we discussed in episode 124. There's not really much choice in the matter, though. We have to highlight the tenth chapter, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, probably the most famous thing Lord ever wrote. The original context for these remarks was a conference marking the 30th anniversary of Simone de Beauvoir's feminist philosophical classic, The Second Sex, whose impact on Lorraine Hansberry we considered in our episode on her. Lord's remarks are not focused on Beauvoir, however. Instead, she chose to reflect on the social dynamics of the conference itself, 
I stand here as a black lesbian feminist, she said, having been invited to comment within the only panel at this conference where the input of black feminists and lesbians is represented. DeVoe has described Lord's commentary as a kind of guerrilla tactics moment in which she struck at the unsuspecting mistresses of the house as the white American feminists who organized the conference were the explicit targets of her critique. Lord sums up her argument early on in this way. What does it mean when the tools of a racist patriarchy are used to examine the fruits of that same patriarchy? It means that only the most narrow perimeters of change are possible and allowable. She thus invokes a basic principle that should not be hard to acknowledge, namely that the more we question the wide array of assumptions informing the status quo, the more likely we are to see what is problematic in it and seek out real change, rather than change of the most superficial kind. Thus, when Lord makes the remark that gives the chapter its title, she claims that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house because, while they may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. A number of critical questions might come to mind here, but let's just ask the most obvious one. How exactly is this metaphor supposed to work? If the master used a hammer to build his house, why would we doubt that the hammer could come in handy when dismantling the house? At the risk of criticizing a great poet's choice of images, to be honest, we're not sure the metaphor can be made to work well. But the line about the master's tools is still a memorable phrase, and her philosophical point may stand up to scrutiny even if the metaphor doesn't. Getting distracted by the usefulness of hammers is, by the way, only one potential problem. Another is that getting deeper into the speech means wading into the necessary but very murky conversation of how to achieve sufficient diversity in settings like that conference. Surely she is right to reject the idea that her invitation alone could be enough to show the conference's diversity, but what exactly would count as substantial representation? While not denying the need for such hard conversations, we would locate the most noteworthy philosophical point in the speech in the passage that leads into the familiar titular phrase. Survival, she here claims, is not an academic skill. It is not something taught in classrooms or conferences, but rather through certain tough experiences. Survival, according to Lord, is learning how to stand alone, unpopular and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and seek a world in which we all can flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. We highlight this point especially because it leads us directly to age, race, class, and sex, women redefining difference, the 11th chapter of Sister Outsider, delivered originally in 1980. Jack Turner has plausibly called this her most comprehensive theoretical analysis, and it is certainly essential reading for any who wish to understand her conception of difference, which emerged over time as the central idea of her prose. She establishes difference as a kind of philosophical problem by drawing attention to our patterns of responding to difference with fear. This fear leads us to handle difference in one of three ways. Ignore it, and if that is not possible, copy it if we think it is dominant, or destroy it if we think it is subordinate. What we lack, according to Lord, are patterns for relating across our human differences as equals. In order to clear the conceptual path towards that beautiful destination, one of Lord's crucial moves is distinguishing between difference and separation. She writes, Certainly there are very real differences between us of race, age, and sex, but it is not those differences between us that are separating us, it is rather our refusal to recognize those differences and to examine the distortions which result from our misnaming them 
and their effects upon human behavior and expectation. Well, some people worry that we have trouble as a species because we invent differences between ourselves and fixate on them. Lord argues here and elsewhere that not only are differences like race, sex, and age real, but it is the failure to properly acknowledge their reality that causes us trouble. A future world of free and equal humans is only possible on her account if we learn to value difference. Having come now to Lord's central idea, we'll go rather quickly in our highlights for the other years of the early 1980s. 1981's The Uses of Anger, Women Responding to Racism deserves mention because it provides us with one of the most notable examples of Lord's impact on contemporary philosophy. Maisha Cherry, professional philosopher and fellow podcaster, has argued in her recent book, The Case for Rage, that Lordian rage, as she names the kind of anger that Lord discusses in this essay, has an important role to play in anti-racist struggle. 1982's Learning from the 60s is noteworthy as yet another example of the importance of the legacy of Malcolm X to Africana philosophy in the late 20th century. Lord proclaims herself an inheritor of Malcolm, which might surprise those who assume he would be hard to appreciate for a feminist like her. It's not hard to understand, however, for Lord naturally found herself attuned to his remarkable capacity for change and growth. She comments, In the last year of his life, Malcolm X added a breadth to his essential vision that would have brought him, had he lived, into inevitable confrontation with the question of difference as a creative and necessary force for change. In other words, Lord was confident that, had Malcolm lived, he would have joined her in thinking through her central idea. This also isn't the most striking example of Lord embracing, in some sense, a figure that has been criticized for sexism. DeVoe points out in her biography of Lord that the poet was distrustful of Maulana Karenga while around him in Nigeria. That's right, although we didn't mention it until now, he too was at Festac. It's remarkable then that later in that same year, when delivering The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action, she talked about how her family was celebrating Kwanzaa that year. As she spoke on the third day of Kwanzaa, she took the time to illustrate other points she was making by referring to the holiday's first three principles, umoja, or unity, kujichagulia, or self-determination, and ujima, or collective work and responsibility. Our tour through Sister Outsider by year must culminate with the book's final chapter, which concerns a momentous event in 1983, although the chapter was composed in 1984, while the rest of the book was already being typeset. This is Grenada Revisited, an interim report, and like the book's opening chapter, it features Lord's reflections on a trip outside of the United States. Here, of course, the destination was not Russia, but the place her parents left when they came to the United States, the island nation of Grenada. Lord visited Grenada for the first time in 1978, but this interim report comes out of her second visit in December of 1983. To say that a lot changed in between her two visits would be putting it lightly. When she visited for the first time, the Prime Minister of Grenada was an authoritarian and notoriously eccentric man named Eric Gary. The following year, 1979, Gary was overthrown through an armed revolt and a party called the New Jewel Movement began an unprecedented experiment in trying to build a socialist society in the English-speaking Caribbean. The charismatic leader of the Grenada Revolution was Maurice Bishop. Precisely because of his popularity, the revolution is often taken to have imploded in October of 1983, when Bishop was deposed, placed on house arrest, and ultimately executed by a rival faction of the party. What happened next was the United States' invasion of Grenada, which Lord deplored. 
Much of this final chapter of the book is taken up with criticism of the arrogance, racism, and duplicity of the invasion. But as Lord situates herself on the scene, we see her righteous anger at the invading country tempered with humble uncertainty about what's next for the invaded country, which is also hers, but in a different way, and that difference makes a difference. Lord writes, I looked around me, talked with Grenadians on the street, the shops, the beaches, on porches in the solstice twilight. Grenada is their country. I am only a relative. I must listen long and hard and ponder the implications of what I have heard, or be guilty of the same quick arrogance of the U.S. government in believing that there are external solutions to Grenada's future. This humility is both admirable and compatible with the pride in being of Grenadian descent that she displays in the final paragraph. We see her childhood sense of Grenada as home, integrated with her adult commitment to the total liberation of all, as she echoes Bishop's revolutionary slogan, forward ever, backward never, is more than a mere whistle in the present dark. Sister Outsider was by no means the end of Lord's career. A subsequent volume of prose, published in 1988, entitled A Burst of Light, is too often overlooked, to say nothing of her poetry. The time she had after Sister Outsider was nevertheless tragically short. DeVoe speaks of Lord as having lived two lives, the second of which began after she was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent a mastectomy in 1978. This life, as DeVoe describes it, was defined and in many ways dominated by the theme of cancer. The major book of prose that we have not yet mentioned is her 1980 volume, The Cancer Journals. Especially symbolic of Lord's power as a feminist philosopher is this book's discussion of the political dimensions of a woman's decision, or refusal, to wear a prosthetic breast after a mastectomy. Lord was diagnosed with liver cancer in 1984, the same year Sister Outsider was published, and this eventually took her life in 1992. Cancer is not all that defined Lord's last years, though. While her relationship with Frances Clayton deteriorated and finally came to an end over the course of the 1980s, this decade saw the development of her love and partnership with Gloria Joseph, an Africana thinker in her own right. For example, we find not just Lord's age, sex, race, and class, but also an essay by Joseph on Black feminist pedagogy in that important collection of Black feminist writing, Words of Fire. Joseph grew up in New York City, like Lord, and had been an interdisciplinary social scientist at Hampshire College before retiring to the island of her birth, St. Croix, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. When Lord went to Grenada after the U.S. invasion, Joseph accompanied her. Gradually, Lord's visits to St. Croix to see Joseph turned into a permanent stay, and Lord had been living in the Caribbean with Joseph for about six years when she died. Rather than ending with her death, though, there is one more aspect of Lord's intellectual activity in the 1980s that we ought to mention, especially because it concerns the development of Africana philosophy in the country where I live, that is, in Germany. In 1981, Lord received a letter from a German sociologist named Dagmar Schulz, who witnessed her present The Uses of Anger at the conference of the National Women's Studies Association. Schultz wrote to Lord because she wished to translate both the uses of anger and uses of the erotic into German, so it seems safe to say she found something of value in both pieces. She also invited Lord to come teach for a summer semester at the John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies at the Free University of Berlin. Lord came to Berlin to do this in 1984, the same year that Sister Outsider was published. As Jennifer Michaels sums things up in her article, The Impact of Audre Lorde's Politics and Poetics on Afro-German Women Writers, not only did she help Afro-Germans organize as a community and encourage them to define their multiple biracial identities, but through her political thinking and her poetics, she also shaped the course of their writing. Indeed, 
The very term Afro-German is understood to have been first promoted by none other than Lord. In 1986, as a result of this intellectual influence, two Afro-German thinkers, Mai Ayim and Katharina Gontoye, collaborated with Schultz to edit Farbe Bekennen, a work of historic impact in Afro-European thought, which is available in translation as Showing Our Colors, Afro-German Women Speak Out. Lord provided a foreword for the original German edition and expanded this for the English translation, further memorializing the process of self-discovery and community building that made the book possible. For me, Afro-German means the shining faces of May and Katerina in animated conversation about their father's homelands, the comparisons, joys, disappointments. It means my pleasure at seeing another Black woman walk into my classroom, her reticence slowly giving way as she explores a new self-awareness gains a new way of thinking about herself in relation to other Black women. And we're not done talking about other Black women ourselves. Certainly, it would have been a fitting end to the series on Black feminism to do as we have done in this episode and give all due praise to Lord. But the topic really has its hooks in us, and hopefully in you listeners too. So it's also fitting that we discuss another great feminist author next time, Bell Hooks. Or actually, two great feminist authors, since we'll be pairing Hooks with Patricia Hill Collins, who is still active and writing on these topics even now. Another sign that we're approaching the now, and not the history, of Africana philosophy. <laughs>